Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a sit down with the newly appointed Maricopa County Sheriff. And we'll learn what topological acoustics means and how it's being used in Arizona. But we begin this morning with a closer look at a proposal being advanced by state Republicans that's being called the next SB 1070. House Speaker Ben Toma introduced a resolution last week that he's calling one of the toughest immigration laws ever written. And Latino activists and business owners took to the Capitol this week to denounce it. It would bolster already existing laws surrounding E-Verify, targeting businesses and making it tougher for people who cross the border illegally to work in the state. Now, Latino advocacy groups are calling on business leaders to oppose this proposal, which would bypass the governor's veto pen and be sent to the ballot for voters to decide. Wayne Shutsky from KJZZ's politics desk has been covering it all, and he joins us now with more. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. Okay, so let's start with this SB 1070 comparison. These bills would do very different things, it seems to me. Where is this comparison coming from? So this new one is part of a package of bills, and some of the other ones would do things more similar to SB 1070, criminalize crossing the border in state law. So that's, I think, where that comparison is coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but this specific bill, as you said, would actually strengthen the E-Verify laws that already exist. So add more enforcement mechanisms, um, strengthen and make more punitive damages if, if, if people are breaking that law, which requires employers to verify that their employees are um, authorized to work in the country legally. Yes. Um, so the, the comparison is coming because of the package of bills, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then these advocacy groups are saying that they're all essentially targeting um, the Hispanic community as a scapegoat for the current situation at the border. Mm-hmm. So you were down at the Capitol earlier this week when leaders from the Latino community were were really kind of pointing the finger at businesses, the business community, and calling on them to, to sort of step up and voice their opposition to this in particular. Tell us what they had to say at the Capitol. Yeah, so number one, they're making that SB 1070 comparison saying, you know, that was bad for the economy, that, you know, led to boycotts, things of that nature, and this is going to do the same thing. And they weren't calling out any business individually, mm-hmm. but they were saying things like the last time, you know, uh, a year after 1070, when more immigration bills came out, a bunch of major CEOs from across the valley signed a letter to then Senate President Russell Pierce saying, hey, just knock it off, please. Yeah. Um, and and they believe that that made a big difference. So they were kind of hinting like, hey, you guys were Johnny come lately last time, maybe get on board. Okay, so what have we heard so far in terms of response from the business community? Um, Almost nothing. Uh, The Hispanic Chamber of Commerce has come out against it. They were part of that press conference. The only other Chamber of Commerce I've seen that has registered opposition is the West Valley Chamber of Commerce Alliance. Other than that, um, my calls to some business leaders, my calls to the Arizona Chamber of Commerce have largely gone unanswered. Mm -hmm. Uh, The advocates who were at the press conference say, they're, that wasn't unexpected, that they think a lot of these business folks who may be privately concerned that this will have a bad impact on the economy are hoping that it dies in the process because this hasn't passed the Senate yet. Yeah. And that they're hoping it'll die before it ever gets to the ballot. This is a bill that's that's aimed at businesses in a way, though, like they'd be facing felonies, right? Like if they failed to use the E-Verify program? If, if they try, if they know, if they knowingly circumvent it. it sure. Um, 
they, there's there's a felony provision in there. There's a $10,000 per incident fine uh-huh, in there. Uh-huh. There's also a provision in there requiring county attorneys and the attorney general to investigate um, allegations that this is being violated, mm-hmm. which wasn't in before because there's – this E-Verify rule has been on the books for a while. Yeah. But there's criticism from both – I mean from even from Republicans who theoretically like it that – it just hasn't been enforced. So this is adding some of those teeth they think will add more enforcement. Enforcement measures. Is there any sense, though, that the business community would would bristle at this, like this would be tough for them? I, I think it's hard to see a, a situation in which they wouldn't because I mean, none of the none of the industry groups want to say this out loud. But, I mean, a lot of these industries, according to, you know, research, do rely on workers who are not authorized legally to work in this country. Things like agriculture, construction, restaurants are some of the some of the data I've seen are some of the top industries. And so I reached out to some of those groups. Um, the Home Builders Association just said that they are monitoring it. The Restaurants Association kind of gave a similar no comment, but we're, we are watching mm-hmm. the progress of this bill. But they haven't really weighed in one way or the other. Obviously, this is being sponsored by the House Speaker, a very powerful uh, person in the legislature. So there is concerns about crossing crossing mm-hmm. him and coming out against this kind of stuff. Mm. What about the Phoenix Suns? That's an interesting example of this because the team's previous owner came out pretty strong against SB 1070 pretty early, right, in 2010? Yeah. Robert Sarver made a comment in, in like, I think it was on May 2010, where he basically said he didn't think this was the, that, that bill was the right way to handle this problem. And he felt that it was a little, it was mean-spirited, I think was the words he mm. used. And now the Phoenix Suns have a big connection with the Latino community in Arizona. Devin Booker, one of the team's biggest stars, um, is is Mexican, and he he makes a lot about his connection to Phoenix and the Phoenix Latino community. Uh, the, the team holds a lot of special events and nights geared towards that community. Uh, but and I've reached out to them for for their position on this as well. But thus far, it's it's been crickets. SB 1070 has really gone down in Arizona has a history, a sort of a stain in many ways. It, as we said, hurt the state's economy. It resulted in protests, boycotts. There's sort of a you know, that's the, the idea when you read about this. But we shouldn't forget it was really popular with Arizonans when it was passed. So if something like this were to go to the ballot for Arizona voters to vote on, do we have any sense of, of how they would feel about it? It's hard to say simply because it is such a new proposal that we don't have actual polling on it or anything we can fall back on in that way. But like you said, if history indicates anything, it's that it it was popular and um, it is a different time now than it was then. That was over a decade ago. But immigration is again and the border are huge issues. Mm -hmm. So and especially something like E-Verify, which, um, you know, a lot of voters might look at and be like, yeah, this is already on the books. This is just strengthening that. I, I could see that passing. I, uh, there was an Arizona Republic poll back in 2010, back when all the other stuff was happening, that found 66 percent of Arizona supported something that would require employers to verify that their employees um, are legally authorized to work. So um, I could see this having a better chance w- with voters, which is why you see something like this going straight to the ballot versus those other measures which are going to get vetoed by the governor, but may also not be as popular in this day and age with, mm. with voters. Very interesting. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Wayne Shetsky with KJZZ's Politics Desk. Wayne, thanks as always. Yeah, thanks for having me.
The fallout from the University of Arizona's $177 million budget shortfall has taken a turn this week and now has the governor pitted against the Board of Regents, which oversees our state's public universities. Governor Katie Hobbs is demanding an in-person meeting with the Regents and the U of A president, Robert Robbins, immediately is the quote, saying they have failed in their oversight of the university. The move comes after Board Chair Fred Duvall sent a cease and desist letter to the chair of the U of A's faculty Senate after she accused him of a potential conflict of interest. Here to explain all the complicated web that is it's becoming is Ellie Wolf, who's covering the story for the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson. Thanks for coming back on, Ellie. Thanks for having me. So the governor seems pretty angry. This was a pretty stark statement she put out earlier this week. What did she say in this in this letter demanding a meeting? So, as you said, number one, she demanded a meeting. Um, (laughs) And she also, you know, she wrote that um, ABOR Chair Fred Duvall's cease and desist letter to the UA Faculty Senate uh, Chair Layla Hudson was, you know, not real leadership. Um, She was angry and she says that she feels that um, ABOR is has attacked faculty leadership um, and faculty members. And she wrote, um, and this is, of course, me paraphrasing, but she wrote that, um, you know, instead of attacking faculty and staff that are worried and scared about potential layoffs, um, that ABOR should get out of their, quote, ivory tower and um, work on kind of riding the ship at the University of Arizona. Mm. So let's get into that in a moment. But tell us first more about what's happening in this conflict between the U of A's Faculty Senate and the Board of Regents. One ABOR member called for President Robbins to basically get rid of the Faculty Senate. And then there's this sort of rift between the chair of the Board of Regents, Fred Duvall, and the head of the U of A's Faculty Senate. What is she accusing him of? So it's really fascinating. Um, Last week, uh, Dr. Layla Hudson, who's the chair of the UA Faculty Senate, accused Fred Duvall in a special um, faculty Senate meeting of a potential conflict of interest. Um, So Fred Duvall served on um, the Board of Regents once before from about 2006 to 2012, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he ran for governor. And after that, and before he started his second term as the Board of Regents, he was a managing director in a private firm called Amicus Investments. Um, He was listed on the website as recently as April of 2023, which Dr. Hudson found using the Wayback Machine, which is um, a website that allows you to look at kind of archives of different websites. Um, And she presented those screenshots to the Faculty Senate. She said that Chair Duval has been icing her out um, in conversations, and so she doesn't feel like she can ask this to him and say a phone call because she's saying that she hasn't been able to get in touch with him. Um, and so she said, you know, that she was just posing questions, as she said that that was the, what the faculty senate is supposed to do. Um, and Chair Duval's reaction to that was swift, and it was harsh, I would say. Mm. Um, he hired a lawyer right away. He sent a cease and desist letter. The recording of the faculty senate meeting was briefly taken down from the website. It has since returned, so everyone can watch it um, on the UA faculty senate website. Um And he gave his own remarks at an ABOR meeting in Tempe on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And he stated that it was embarrassing the level of uh, research that Dr. Hudson had um, used to come up with this. And he said Amicus was kind of a failed project and that he didn't know why they listed that they had worked with the University of Arizona and Arizona State University on the website. Um, And so it's been really interesting. Mm. And it's kind of one of two things where either the company Amicus Investments had not updated their website in a really long time. And now Chair Duval is paying the price for that. Or there is, as Dr. Hudson has implied, something more sinister going on in a potential conflict of interest. Mm. Okay, so all of this seems to be kind of taking away from the problem at hand here, which is this massive budget shortfall at the University of Arizona. And the governor seems to be pointing that out. What did she say about what needs to be done on that front? So she didn't give a ton of specifics. She actually, we know... um, requested that she meet with the Board of Regents and the UA leadership yesterday. Unfortunately, President Robbins and the interim CFO, John Arnold, could not do that meeting because they had already had plans to speak to the fac- or to the staff council. Um, but they did say that they were meeting with her next week. It'll be a closed-door meeting, so no media and um, no community members, which is also interesting. Awar's been doing a lot of that recently. Mm. Um, and we really don't know what she's going to kind of demand, but she she has come aggressively out against Abor, Um and she has mentioned uh, Chair Fred Duval by name. I mean, what could happen here, though, Ellie? I mean, like the 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 board of regents is appointed by the governor. The, the, these members were appointed by our last governor. But can the governor change who's on that board? Can she fire people? That is a great question and something that we've been working to figure out exactly what she wants to do here. Um, And so we've reached out to the governor's team and so far haven't had a response. I mean, her getting rid of a regent, I think, would set a very interesting precedent. I don't Mm. think that's been done in years, if ever. Um, And it would be interesting if she would try to push out uh, Fred Duvall, who's the only Democrat on the board right now. Um, she has the ability to appoint, I believe, two new regents um, because two just finished their term, but because of um, kind of current conflicts within the state house, she's ha- we all know that she's having trouble um, getting through some nominees for other positions. And so there's a question of whether she'll be able to put uh, who she wants to on ABOR. Last 30 seconds here, Ellie. So very quickly, where do efforts to balance the budget stand at U of A right now? That is another good question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right now, we know that um, all of the budget units, that's 81, and that includes colleges, um, schools, etc., they are having to... um, submit budget plans for a potential 5%, 10%, and 15% cut. And Mm -hmm. we'll know more about what actually gets cut in April. Um, And John Arnold stated that, you know, there will be layoffs, um, but we won't have that information until kind of midway through the spring. All right. We'll leave it there. Ellie Wolf covering this story for the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson. Ellie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, humans have been curious about Mars for centuries. We'll hear from one author about what makes the red planet so fascinating. But first, newly appointed Maricopa County Sheriff Russ Skinner announced yesterday he will run for the office in November, and he'll do it as a Democrat. This despite the fact that he has been a longtime Republican. He changed his affiliation to replace former Sheriff Paul Penzone, a Democrat also, earlier this month. He wasn't sure he would run for the position to begin with, he said, but in his first press conference yesterday, he announced his intentions. He told the press he's honored to run the department and that it doesn't matter what political party he belongs to. He doesn't think the sheriff should be a political job. But this is the office that was long led by Joe Arpaio, the so-called America's toughest sheriff. And the office is still under the eye of a court-appointed monitor and several court orders as a result of Arpaio's time in office. I sat down with Skinner after his press conference yesterday to talk about all of this. He's a more than 30-year veteran of the sheriff's office, and he served as Penzone's chief deputy until he left the position early, citing the ongoing court orders on his way out. Skinner told me he was a little shocked when he heard the news. I was at a point in my career that, you know, I could have... uh retired at that point. Um, but then I looked around and saw some of the faces that as he you know, disclosed this information of the staff that were shocked, but also um, just kind of uneasy of what's the future hold? What's the future bring? Um, uncertainty, I guess is the best word to put it. And then I also got a lot of outpouring from texts and phone calls, not only from internal staff members, but other law enforcement agencies, uh, colleagues out there, community members, family members, and I soon realized, uh, you know, the right thing to do is probably step up and, and start going forward with this. Let me ask you about what you learned from Paul Penzone to begin with. Um, I mean, like working directly under him and, and in the time that he was there in which you're under this court order, et cetera. What did you learn? Yeah, obviously I learned a lot. I mean, I was not an executive leadership before that. I was a, a captain coming in and he promoted me right away to a deputy chief position. And so there was a learning curve there and I'm not uh, going to pit previous leadership, current leadership, future leadership. Everybody has a different style of that, but he provided me opportunity at least, uh, you know, grow in those roles. And uh, actually, I was on a pretty progressive and fast pace. I mean, there's things that, you know, he'll tell you that he and I didn't agree with, but at the end of the day, he was the sheriff. And we made sure that that was the message delivered, but also that we were doing it for the right reasons to, to mitigate liability for the agencies, to hold those accountable, and to make sure that we were being progressive in, in our decision making. And uh, things I, I feel, you know, I, I don't know, maybe the, the, the community can decide and the agency can decide, but I think things are moving on the right path. And now for somebody from within internal in the agency to now take on this, uh, the role, uh, again, I have different leadership styles. There may be things that we, you know, that I do differently, um, but I think I have at least hopefully the ability to move it forward. So what did you learn as someone in the in this department during the time of Joe Arpaio, which was controversial, I would say, um, a lot of national attention, a lot of media attention, a lot of court activity. What was that like for you and from the perspective you had at the time? I think early on, you know, he had some progressive measures. I don't know that that started to percolate till later on in uh, his his tenure in office. I wasn't directly impacted or aware, uh, I think, of a lot of the issues, but uh, it really did hit me full force in October 2020. Uh, 13 when the federal court order was issued on the agency. And then I got a very, you know, strong wind of knowledge on that. 
Um, you know, as an employee, I had to do what needed to be done uh, as long as it's ethically and morally correct. And I, I continued to follow those measures. Now we have a few court orders, which, you know, provides uh, remedies, requirements and reform. Um, we're, we're making sure they're being carried out. Nobody wants a federal court order of an agency. I mean, you want to be able to 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 do your own thing and, and do it correctly and do it constitutionally. We're still correcting, you know, some of those, you know, what they found was to be, uh, you know, illegal. And uh, we're going to make sure we're on the right course to move forward. I want to ask you more about the court order in a moment. But let me ask you one more question about Arpaio. What do you think his legacy was for this department? Do you feel like it's still hanging over the the department in some ways? You know, I I don't think so. I mean, everybody, I guess, makes a mark within their agency, especially as an elected official. I think there's some that may feel in the community that, still good. I, you know, they may be hollering his name. I don't know. And then there's others that know that the impact that we're dealing with is uh, something that, you know, uh, changed our environment, especially some of the reforms. Uh, again, maybe good for the agency because we got ahead of some of the issues that I think all law enforcement needed to change and reform upon. And we're, we're seeing that. But I think the impact that people look back on is, yes, we have, uh, you know, federal oversight now. And that's, you know, nobody nobody wants that. It's not a want. It's not a desire. But it was what's needed, and we're living with that. And we'll continue to make sure that we're uh, abiding by the, the the requirements of that. So let me ask you about that, because your predecessor was not, uh, you know, secretive about the reason he stepped down and not being able to do what he wanted to do with this office as part of the reason he left. What's your view on that? Do you see an end, a timeline, a way to kind of resolve this? Well, and that's my hope and desire. Obviously, being involved with a court order for 10 years, um, we were hoping it wouldn't take that long. Uh, but it is a very complex order. Obviously, there's been other issues where, you know, it's uh, additional court orders or, you know, revisions of it have come forward uh, relative to some of the reform that the judge saw that during the lawsuit. My goal and hope is, yes, that we continue forward to get at least uh, compliance with that so we can uh, assert full and effective compliance hopefully with a portion of it, and we can focus on the other areas that we still need to, to work on, or at some point that we we obtain that and that we're self-sustaining in that. Because I guess, you know, the bottom line is, is we have to show self-sustainment that these things are occurring and that they're occurring regularly for three years, that we maintain that level of compliance. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a work in progress, and there's, there is a lot of complexity. There's a lot of discussion, and I hope to bring to the table um, that open communication, uh, whether it's agreed upon or disagreed upon, that we're working forward with the right steps uh, for our staff and for this community. As we talk about the legacy of Joe Arpaio, I think that it's worth talking about his legacy in the Latino community here and how uh, there have been many efforts, I think, since then to try to rebuild trust with that community. Where do you think the office stands on that? Are there things you would like to do in terms of communicating or, or reaching out to that community in a new way? Yeah, and again, I've uh, been in executive leadership for the last seven years for this agency. So I I can say without a doubt, you know, maybe reflect on what does this agency look like now versus issues that may have, uh, you know, obviously arose back then. Um, I think we can show a progressive path forward. I I certainly hope the Latino community uh, is willing and able to continue to 
open those conversations up. If there are issues that they're still impacting them or that they feel, or even perceptions of the agency, I think a lot of it now is, I think the two categories are perception and trust. Uh, you know, obviously we're not doing any of the uh, immigration roundups, the sweeps. All of that stuff has been enjoined. Uh, the agency is working to build those community relationships and bonds out there. But if if there are areas that we can work together to move forward, I sure hope that we do. One of the concerns from that community in recent years, at least, has been the 287G program allowing immigration officers into the jails. Will you continue that? So our jail facilities are multifunctional facilities, multi-jurisdictional. We provide uh, opportunities for over 27 different agencies to utilize that facility. Just because it says MCSO on it doesn't mean I can, you know, pick out an agency and say, oh, you can't come into our facility. Um, they're federal we're state. We don't enforce federal law. We provide space for them, just as we do Phoenix PD, just as we do other agencies if they have booking wagons for a safe and secure environment to do their job. And what I'd say is we're not in the immigration business. We're not into uh, enforcing uh, federal law. And if that's the the issues, I would say have that community reach out to the DOJ. I mean, if if they feel that immigration and and Border Patrol or ICE officers, if there's different levels that they would like to have taken or they have concerns, bring it to those agencies. Um, Again, we're just providing a facility, uh, the county's providing a facility for people to do their job safely and securely. And that means I have to be partners with all these agencies and I'm not going to single out um, anybody from doing their job. That we're, we're not the ones doing that enforcement effort. Last question for you is a, a forward-looking one sort of about the election that you're about to be running in here. Um, you had to switch to a Democratic affiliation to take this position from Paul Penzone. You were a registered Republican before. And you've talked about the, the need for the, the office to be nonpartisan. And I wonder, I wonder to hear a little bit more from you on that. And if you think it's, I guess, possible in the political environment that we live in and heading into an election this year. Political party doesn't change the person. And I will say, look back at the last seven years and, you know, obviously Paul Pinzone ran the office, but I also had a part in the operations of it and uh, certainly take the accountability and moving forward. And I'll do things maybe a little differently, but uh, I, I will say that there is nothing that should be political in law enforcement. Law enforcement should be unbiased and evenly keeled in delivery of services. You will continue to get that with me. Um, I changed my party at, uh, you know, and again, that's just because of the need to uh, align by requirement at the time that Paul Penzone stated that he was not running. Uh, if you look, some of the other candidates have uh, switched their party as well, as well as Paul Penzone uh, prior to running for office. That should show that this, you know, politics don't or should not drive this agency. And I'm committed to making sure that I run the ethical path and make sure that we provide the best leadership and services out there despite political affiliation. Maricopa County Sheriff Russ Skinner, thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. The University of Arizona late last year received a $30 million grant from the National Science Foundation. It'll use the money to create a new center called New Frontiers of Sound. The project will bring together scientists from eight other schools around the country, including Caltech, UCLA, and Georgia Tech in the area of topological acoustics. Pierre Damier is a professor in the Department of Material Science and Engineering at the University of Arizona and director of New Frontiers of Sound. My co-host Mark Brody spoke with him earlier and asked what topological acoustics entails. 
So it's a very difficult concept to grasp. But the first thing before we talk about topological acoustics, we need to define what is the geometry of sound. And once we define the geometry of sound, then uh, I can introduce the notion of topological acoustic, if it's okay with you. So, so basically the geometry of, of sound is looking at an attribute of sound waves, which is in space and not in time. We're familiar with sound as being related to frequency. We hear high pitch sound, high frequency sound, or we can talk about low tone sound, which are low frequency. So that is in the time domain. But what we're talking about here in terms of the geometry of sound is in the spatial domain. So you can imagine a room, let's say, with all kinds of stuff in that room. We have um, a speaker phone. And what it's doing is, is it has a given frequency and then it's generating sound, sound waves. And at some point, we're familiar with the notion of saying then the sound is filling the room. So basically, there is a now a landscape of sound in that room. We call it also the soundscape. And when we talk about the geometry of sound, I talk the, about the geometrical attribute of sound or the landscape of sound inside the room in terms of the intensity of the sound inside that room. Of course, this intensity or this map depends on um, uh, the, the configuration of, of the room and what's in the room itself, as well as the frequency and the uh, the loudspeaker that is used for generating the sound. Is that making sense so far? It does. And am I right to assume then that if you have this room and you have sound that is filling that room, if you add something to it or take something away, let's say you put a sofa in that room or take take it away, that alters that soundscape because there's one more or one less thing for that sound to bounce off of. Yes, of course. It's going to change that landscape. And eventually, in our center, we're going to use this soundscape as a way of monitoring changes in the room, or effectively, we're more interested in changes in the environment as we monitor those changes through acoustic waves. How do you go about trying to monitor that? So, so this, this uh, part of the project is, is as follows. If I tweak the frequency. So let's say I change the frequency of the source of sound. There may be the possibility of what we call flipping the soundscape, which means, you know, you, you may have that sense uh, also. You have in the room, you think about the soundscape, you have part of the room which may be more quiet than another part of the room. There may be a part which is loud, a part which is more quiet. So basically that describes the landscape or the soundscape of that form. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a topography of, of, uh, of a mountainous area where you have mountains and you have valleys. Yeah. Now, when we turn and change the frequency of that sound, there may be a flipping of the soundscapes. Regions where, which were loud may become regions which are um, quiet, and regions which are quiet may become uh, loud. So we can use this change as a way of monitoring uh, a change in the environment. And if there is a change in the environment, let's say someone moves the sofa by a little bit, and then you can detect a very large change in your soundscape for a very small change in the environment. 
So I understand that this kind of research has great use in technology and in computing fields. Can you explain what the relationship is between what it is that you're studying and how it how it might be used in, in computing or tech? So, so if we continue talking about this sensing, we're going to the center, the new frontiers of sound center is going to use this notion of topological acoustic sensing to uh, detect changes in the permafrost, effectively the thawing of permafrost in Alaska or in the Arctic regions. We know that permafrost is, is a frozen part of the ground in Arctic regions. And what happens if the climate is warming, then this ground is, or the permafrost is thawing, and that is changing uh, the ground. And then you have a dramatic effect on infrastructures like roads or buildings. So what we're going to use is not sound wave, but seismic wave, which are effectively sound wave, but of very low frequency as a way of monitoring changes in the ground because the seismic wave live in the ground when the permafrost is thawing. So we can use this sensing technology as a way of warning people that there are changes taking place and uh, that may impact uh, uh, infrastructures. So that's one of the potential application. The other potential application is in computing. You mentioned computing. So we can explore ways of uh, using topological acoustic waves as a mean of developing uh, approaches to do quantum-like computing. You've heard about quantum computing? Yeah. We can use this analogy to use acoustic wave to do similar uh, computations. Is this the kind of research and technology that could also help figure out what materials might be best in certain devices or in, in certain computers to, to help sort of maximize the sound, maximize the acoustics? So, so the materials are critical. Um, I, I was talking about a room and, and speakerphone inside this room, but that's, that was a metaphor for materials. We do all these things by using specific materials. So, of course, we are focusing on optimizing the structure of ma these materials. These materials are typically composite materials. These are materials made of different types of materials combined in some specific uh, manner and with specific properties. And uh, we are focusing on identifying the structure of those composite materials that can achieve these extraordinary properties that I just talked about. And is like how widespread is it? Like, are there a lot of people doing what it is that you're doing? So there is a very key element in this center. It's not only doing research and developing technologies that are going to impact society, but also educating students in that emerging field. So there is a strong component in the center, but creating effectively the workforce for or the future workforce for um, uh, promoting topological acoustics as a way of developing these new technologies. Sure. All right. Well, Pierre, thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for walking me through this. I appreciate it. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Pierre Damier is a professor in the Department of Material Science and Engineering at the University of Arizona and director of the Science and Technology Center called New Frontiers of Sound.
Late last year, the U.S. Department of Education fined Grand Canyon University nearly $40 million for allegedly defrauding students over the cost of its doctoral programs. Now, the conservative think tank, the Goldwater Institute, is suing the Department of Education, claiming the federal government is targeting the private Christian university. But it's not the first time the federal government has been at odds with GCU. I spoke more about it all with the Arizona Republic's higher education reporter, Helen Rummel. So last October, the Department of Education came forward and they presented this $37.7 million fine to Grand Canyon University because they said that there were far fewer students that were able to complete their doctoral program under the costs that were advertised. An investigation conducted by one of their departments found that only around 2% of students paid what was advertised, Mm. um, resulting in much higher costs and much higher students' loans being taken out for those degrees. And so they felt that these students had lost a lot of money as a result um, and gave Grand Canyon University this fine, which they have since disputed. Right, right. But now we have this other wrench kind of thrown into this, which is the Goldwater Institute now suing over this. And it's in a little bit of a sideways approach here. Tell us a little bit about what Goldwater is arguing. Yeah, so you're right. It's a very specific lawsuit. um, And it is over this fine because they feel that Grand Canyon University has been targeted. Um, And so they say out of public interest, they would like more transparency over some of the emails being exchanged between different Department of Education officials over this investigation and what went into the investigation. So the complaint in this lawsuit is very specifically over Freedom of Information Act laws, and their claim is that the Department of Education is in violation of those laws by not being very specific on when they will be able to provide these emails Hmm. um, that the Goldwater Institute has asked for as of late last year. So those documents, there are a lot of them. They asked for around 7,000 emails And the Department of Education came back and said that the typical amount of time it takes for people to get a Freedom of Information Act request back is around eight months. And so, you know, some people may not be as familiar with that process, but when you file for public records, it can take some time for departments to make sure that those records are in keeping with different laws that determine what is and is not public. Um, Sometimes things need to be redacted depending on what they include. And so the Department of Education came forward saying that it would take some time for them to get all of those documents back to the Goldwater Institute. And the Goldwater Institute has come back saying that they have not provided a concrete answer on when and how those documents will be returned to them within the 20 business day requirement. So it is a very specific complaint, but it does just touch on some of these overarching themes of government transparency that the Goldwater Institute is claiming that the department is not in full compliance with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's back up, Helen, a little bit and talk about the history of Grand Canyon University here a little bit. Like we all know in Phoenix, this is a private Christian university. It's grown a lot in recent years, but it has had a hard time in the past. And I think this is still ongoing now of trying to get nonprofit status, as most universities are. It's still a for-profit university in some sense. Tell us where that effort stands now. Yeah, so currently um, it's kind of murky at the moment. So the Internal Revenue Service had previously um, allowed Grand Canyon University to define themselves as a nonprofit just for their purposes. Um, And the Department of Education actually has come back and does not 
view Grand Canyon University as such. They see them as a for-profit university for their purposes. And so there is this disagreement there. And as as of last month, a Ninth Circuit court heard arguments from both sides um, to determine whether that will mean changes for Grand Canyon University or if it will remain the same. So there will be an update on that, but it is unclear on when that will come out. Hmm. And I want to talk more about this claim that, that GCU is being targeted. Like Goldwater in its press release on this talked about how the fine against GCU, which is like more than $37 million, is 10 times bigger than the penalties that the Department of Head has assessed against many other big universities in, in maybe higher profile cases. They gave the example of Penn State and Michigan State for covering up the sexual crimes of Jerry Sandusky and, and Larry Nash. Are. are these comparable cases? So the Department of Education has stood fast in, in that fine. And like you said, it is a record-breaking fine. And that is why Grand Canyon University does feel like it's unfair. But the Department of Education has come back saying that there were thousands of students affected by this unexpected cost that they were taking on when they decided to pursue this degree, this doctoral degree. And so they feel that in this case, it is also a special circumstance that since so many students were affected, the fine is warranted in this case. So we talked about what the Goldwater Institute is arguing in this new lawsuit here. But tell us, what is Grand Canyon University saying? I mean, they, as we mentioned, are disputing this, but what's their argument? So Grand Canyon University has claimed that they feel they have been targeted because they are a large private Christian university. And they also feel that there has been government overreach. Um, their president, uh, President Brian Mueller, has said multiple times that he feels that the government has gone too far in their investigations. And this is also not the only investigation that's taking place of Grand Canyon University. Currently, the Federal Trade Commission um, is suing both Grand Canyon University and its president over very similar claims that the Department of Education had. And so that's still an ongoing situation between the federal government and the university. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. Helen Rummel, higher education reporter for the Arizona Republic, joining us. Helen, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. In Phoenix, I'm Lauren Gilger. Humans have long been fascinated by Mars, and that includes our next guest. Matt Schindel says his fascination started about two decades ago as an ASU student when he met the team of geologists that was working on instruments that would be used to explore the red planet. Schindel is a space historian and a space history curator at the National Air and Space Museum in D.C. His book for for the Love of Mars, A Human History of the Red Planet, came out last year. He says he's especially interested in the story of how we came to ask the questions we ask now about Mars and what those questions say about who we are and what we want for our future. My co-host Mark Brody spoke with Shindell earlier and asked what it is about Mars that's fascinated us for, as he points out, basically forever. Yeah, so I mean, we know that people for a very, very long time since well before humans started keeping records, were, were fascinated by the planets uh, in general and their ability to move through the sky in a way that was different from everything else. And Mars is a very unique object among those planets in that you know not only does it move against the fixed stars, but it does some very interesting things that the other planets either don't do or don't do as noticeably. 
So, you know, Mars is this object that seems kind of unpredictable and almost seems to have a will of its own in the way that it moves through the sky. Is its proximity to Earth a factor here as well? I mean, you don't really hear kids talking about little green men from Jupiter or Neptune coming to Earth, but certainly you hear about, you know, Martians, you know, as as potential alien life forms out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have two planets that are nearby neighbors. We have Venus and we have Mars. And, you know, Mars has in, you know, the last hundred or more years been the more popular site to imagine where the aliens might come from. And partly that's because Venus is just this incredibly hot and uh, uninhabitable and hostile place. So, you know, while people did one at one time think that Venus might have life and Venus might be more Earth-like than any other planet, at this point, you know, Mars is not only our near neighbor, but it's also the planet that we kind of think of as being most similar to Earth. Like if you look at the images that come back from the rovers and landers that have been on Mars, um, they look very recognizable, right? They look a lot like what you might be uh, used to seeing in in the American Southwest, in the the deserts of the Southwest. So I think it's kind of like this this natural uh, leap that the imagination makes that says, ah, I can imagine life on this place. Yeah, I'm curious about how some of the images coming back from Mars and, you know, as humans explore that planet more, what does that do to how we think about Mars and maybe what we think are the possibilities about Mars? Yeah. So, you know, over the last 20 years, we have essentially had robotic boots on the ground on Mars. Uh, So, you know, we've been seeing thousands upon thousands of images come back from Mars over this last couple of decades. And Mars has become incredibly familiar to us. And so I think that, you know, we've started to think more and more of Mars as a place that we know, as a place that we understand, and that a place a place that we might one day send people and start new lives. So I do think that uh, this uh, familiarity has kind of brought us to the point right now of being able to very easily imagine ourselves there in the future. Um, Although that's not new entirely either, because we've been imagining sending humans to Mars, uh, you know, ever since the success of the Apollo program. And and honestly, even before that, when people were just dreaming up the, the technologies of spaceflight. So it's an old dream, but right now it feels more realistic than it ever has. Right. Well, so there have obviously been movies about either, you know, alien life forms coming from Mars to Earth or people going to Mars. But sort of beyond, you know, what we've seen on the big screen over the last number of years, how does our interest in and sort of fascination with Mars manifest itself in in popular culture? So I think our fascination with Mars does manifest itself a lot in popular culture. You see it, you know, in a lot of science fiction television um and you know the great example i always like to to bring up when i talk about science fiction and mars in sort of the recent years is the 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 series the expanse that started out on the sci-fi network and then moved over to amazon prime that show imagined a human future in which you know we'd kind of gotten past that point of sending the first humans to mars we had at that point been on mars for long enough that the humans that lived there really considered themselves Martian as opposed to Earthling, you know? And so I think, you know, there's a lot of popular culture like that series that imagines that far future moment. Or, you know, if you think about 
you know, franchises, the larger franchises like Star Trek, you know, that's a future where we've gotten even further past Mars. We've started exploring the, the planetary systems beyond our solar system and finding planets that are a little bit more like Earth. So I do think that in popular culture, we see a discussion happening in movies, in television, in, you know, Lego sets even, mm. uh, and other forms of, of, uh, of toys this discussion happening about when will we go to Mars? What will we do when we get there? And, you know, what will that mean to our future and who we are as humans if we ever do become a interplanetary species? What is the significance, do you think, of the fact that Mars is so distinctive? You know, we think about a planet like Saturn with the rings. Everybody knows Saturn. Everybody knows Mars with its very distinctive red uh, you know, sort of red geology there. And, you know, even if you're standing on Earth and stargazing, if you see sort of a red, you know, red dot in the sky, you know, there's a reasonable chance that what you're looking at is Mars, like it's recognizable. Does that play a role in sort of people's thinking about it and, and fascination with this planet? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, for for centuries, Mars has had the nickname of the red planet. And, um, you know, that is because it is so, so recognizable. But then at the same time, it is also, or at least for many years, was cloaked in mystery because nobody could get a clear view of what the surface of Mars actually looked like. Do you think that eventually we will have people land on Mars and maybe even have humans live there? I mean, I can't imagine that we won't. Um, at one point uh, in our in our future, Maybe it's going to be in the next 20 years, or maybe it's further on down the road. I think there will be a human mission to Mars. It might start out with a, a mission that's sent to orbit Mars and study it from orbit. It might lead to a, a mission then that puts boots on the ground where you know a scientific expedition is going to study the surface uh, in situ, as opposed to the way we do now, back on Earth using robots. And, you know, that will probably lead to a lot of new discoveries. But then when you get to the question of whether we'll actually live on Mars, uh, whether we might build a settlement on Mars, I'm a little more uh, hesitant to, to give an optimistic answer to that, because I think it could happen. But there are a lot of technological challenges to making it happen. And it's also not really clear what the purpose would be of getting beyond, say, a scientific mission or an exploratory mission. You know, what would we get out of living on Mars uh, when it is a planet that is, you know, as we've been learning over the last decades, very inhospitable. Um, you know, it's not going to be an easy place for people to make a life. And it's going to take a lot of resources and a lot of new technologies to make that work. All right, that is Matt Schindel, a historian of science, a space history curator at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, and author of the book For the Love of Mars, A Human History of the Red Planet. Matt, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Little Mars for the end of your Wednesday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. And remember, you can find us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. 